Hello and welcome to Watkins Wise Words, a podcast that celebrates conscious, passionate, wise and happy living. Thank you for tuning in and here is your host. So hello and welcome. My name is Steve Nabell and today I'm speaking with Anthony Cummins on the book of Samurai. Now, Anthony is an author, artist, historian. He's worked as a consultant, co-presenter on high-end documentaries on Japan, distributed by people such as National Geographic. He has been recognized by peers as a leading expert in the discovery of military arts in medieval Japan. And he lives between England and Japan. He's written many books on the ways of the samurai, the ninja, and his latest book is The Book of Samurai, published by Watkins, which he co-wrote with Yoshi Minami. I hope that's the right pronunciation. Uh, and this book presents the lost arts of the samurai in the English language for the first time. So, Anthony, uh, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. So, um, Anthony, you know, I've got some, I think I mentioned to you before, some connection with uh, Japan to the martial arts. You know, I did a bit of Shotokan, karate, Aikido. Can you just say, you know, who is this book for? Is it for kind of like martial arts students, historians, you know, military students? Who are you aiming it for? Well, on the whole, uh, I did the same. I went through um, Shotokan and I went through different karate and things like that. And I started getting interested in the samurai. And I started realizing that actually we don't know so much about the samurai. We've got lots of people doing Japanese martial arts. But, but what do the samurai actually do? So basically it's aimed at anyone who deals with Japanese martial arts and wants to know what the samurai actually did in a day-to-day life. Okay. So how did you get interested in Japan and the ways of the samurai? It's quite a specific subject, isn't it? I have no idea. I absolutely <laughs> only remember as a child Japan. It was Japan. And I've never been obsessed with China or Korea or anything. It was just a, a childhood obsession. I was born in the Japan boom, but, you know, I just carried on after that left. So um, this book is about 16th century Japan, you know, I guess the height of the samurai. And I did a bit of research. So in Europe, you know, you've got Spain and Portugal kind of starting exploration, rise of Protestantism, uh, England breaking away from the Catholic Church, Ottoman Empire spreading. What was going on in Japan when Europe was going through all this turmoil? Well, in Japan, you get what's called the Warring States period. And around this time, in sort of the 1500s, coming up to the early 1600s, they're in chaos uh lower lower ranking landowners are taking over and overthrowing the higher level samurai so basically you've got lower level samurai reversing the the proper order of things and uh, taking over the country and they're trying to unite it together so the book itself was written uh, just after that in the first half of the period of uh, sorry the first half of the 1600s when a period of peace was coming and the idea was to capture all those military skills that were starting to get lost because it was like a blood-torn battlefield in the 1500s and i remember seeing the tv series uh, was it shogun and um, what is is that a little bit after this period or is that is you covering that whole kind of period no, that's exactly it. That's exactly when it was. That that shogun is based on a uh, Tokugawa Iyasu, and uh, the man who wrote this book was actually um, a servant to one of his sons. Brilliant. So it, it's dead on that period. Of course, you. What people have to realise is, at the time of the war, these books weren't written down. People were too busy at war, but people started to write this stuff down directly after the war, and right. that's where all of these records came. Because the book contains work from two scrolls. I, I read. What are those two scrolls? Well, the first one is called Heika Jodan, which means uh, conversations on um, 
samurai families, what samurai families should be doing. And the other one is Ipe Yoko, which means uh, teachings for the independent warrior, like a landed gentry's guide. Now, really, I also read in the book, it's Natori Natori Ru Samurai School. This is, can you say something about that? Yeah, so what happened was is uh, throughout the thousand years of samurai history, um, about halfway through, they start to develop what's called a school, a ryu. And what this means is that it, it, it translates better as flow or tradition of. So you start to get all these different schools popping up, teaching warfare uh, techniques, and they all have this um, suffix, which means ryu, which means a tradition from natori in this case. And that means the tradition from the natori family. Was this a kind of feudal society at the time, a bit like, you know, Britain in the, after the Normans, where you had this kind of hierarchy of classes? Is it like that? Absolutely. You're totally in a feudal system now. There is, you know, there's no way out of it. There's one man at the top and everyone's vying for a bit of power or to climb up the ladder. And when you say samurai, is that all the levels? Or are you really looking at the kind of the lower levels? What do you mean, sorry? Um, well, you know, uh, when you're talking about samurai, you've got all these different levels. Like, you know, in, in yep. European medieval history, you might have kind of knights and then you've got the foot soldiers. And it's the same kind of uh, stuff going yeah. on there. Yeah, absolutely. You were, During the 1500s, people are just scrambling for power because what's con- pretty much the old order is starting to fall away. And the original emperor's lost all his power the shogun, who was uh, the military dictator of Japan, has lost his power. So everybody's scrambling to get up that ladder. And in the end, uh, a man called Tokugawa Iyasu wins, and he scrambles to the top and he takes over all of Japan. And he sort of is a bit of a dictator, and he holds Japan under his sort of family for 250 years. Now, in the book, I, I read about the five foundations you've got. Now, I'm quite. Some of these are quite uh, surprising. I thought the first one you've written about the way, which sounds to me a bit like Taoism uh, from China. It's absolutely based on Taoism. When the period of peace came, basically they started inserting things like Confucianism and other places to make the samurai respect their uh, their lords, because literally the generation before they'd been overthrown. So this was pushed in then. Everyone must respect those who are above them so it didn't happen again. Could you say something about the way? What does the way mean for a samurai then? How would they, how would they practice that in peace and war? That is absolutely... It's one of those questions that everybody asks, especially if you sort of study Taoism. It's what is the way? And yeah. is it the famous quote where it says, the way cannot be described. <laughs> yeah. But basically it means um, you do the correct thing as a samurai every moment of your life so the way is different for different people but the idea is you do it in the correct manner with virtue of course this is an ideal it's not a reality very few people get to the reality of a leading a a righteous and virtuous life because it's quite spiritual you know the Taoism has got a very strong spiritual element has this got a spiritual element this principle yes it yes it has but uh, and it's very much like um follow the, the correct path, do what the ancestors, you know, would be proud of you for doing. However, that becomes a little bit twisted because uh, throughout the teachings, the samurai do some really horrific things and they're really quite brutal. But as long as it's done for loyalty and it's not done for personal gain, it's considered as the correct way. Let's say somebody does something so-called wrong, you know, according to the, the principle of the system. Is there any way of recompense or or coming back on track, you know? 
Okay, is there any punishment for it? Oh, I don't know. I think that it's more of a personal spiritual thing, I think that. Of course, there are laws in place, and if you do something wrong, you can be punished for it. But the way, according to most research, is your own personal path. Nobody can judge you on it. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, very interesting. You know, obviously, that's my opinion, because the way goes in everything. It's Taoism and, you know, in martial arts and things like that. But, of course, if you don't cross... So, for example, uh, a samurai is obliged to decapitate people and take heads off or cut noses off but if he doesn't ask for permission to cut a nose off at the correct time he's done the wrong thing so legally he can be have a problem with that but nobody's gonna say you're spiritually damned for that okay (laughs) (laughs) it's quite all right to cut people's noses off but only when you get permission (laughs) (laughs) okay right okay well, because the way I think of Taoism is more like, um, you know, being in the flow, the next step's obvious, or, those, or, or there's a kind of source energy around you, but they have a different take. Obviously, it's a military kind of system, so they might have a different take on that, I guess. That is, that is the problem with the samurai is basically they're a very military um, organization, and they have to see everything through a military eye. Of course, you know, um, later on, the samurai become much more spiritually on the Do martial arts come in. But originally, they were really concentrating on warfare and how can they serve as a military person. So the next one, I was very surprised at benevolence. There's nothing. I really wouldn't have associated this with samurai, really. <laughs> well, no, yeah, they definitely, they definitely did. The idea is to try and stop a samurai becoming. At the end of the day, he's the most powerful man there is, really, in Japan. And of course, he's there are usually people more powerful than him, or samurai more powerful. But he is in the top six percent of the population. Right. So Natori is saying here is he's saying like you're literally above everyone else that you meet. Um, but make sure it, if you're cruel and horrible, people will turn against you. And remember, the samurai being only six percent, you don't want people uprising against you. So if you go around being nasty, they're going to turn on you. Okay. Yeah, I'm reading in the book. As with heaven, there is nothing it cannot cover. As with the sea, there is nothing it cannot envelop. As with raindrops, there is nothing it cannot soak through. This is talking about benevolence. It's quite all-encompassing is the principle, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, without doubt, he's saying you... Of course, what we, what we have to do is realise the difference between ideal and the reality. But I do think, I do think, Samurai genuinely believed they should be benevolent. Okay. But of course, I think the human can be tempted to do things that are wrong when they have power. Yeah. So I really do think Natori's saying, hey, like, guys, you know, I have to trim down. You're a powerful person. Because at the end of the day, one of the things it says in this manual is if you have to beat a servant because they've been wrong, beat them with a stick instead of the back of your sword. Because if you beat them with the back of your sword, they'll grab the sword to stop it and they'll cut their fingers off and die. So in a one way, benevolence here is beating them with a stick. (laughs) <laughs> as opposed to the back of your sword. So the idea is you've got to realise they suppose that they've got to try and find that line between keeping control and power, but also not becoming cruel and tyrannical. Because for me, the word honour, which is a very Western word, kind of throws up. You know, that honour, something I kind of can explain it, and also there's some of it that you can't explain, you know, to a soldier, honour. Yeah, I've actually done this in another book, and it's it's... The problem we get is Victorian romanticism. We have this idea that a knight is in a shining armour and he, you know, fights the dragon and he's got full of honour. But when you actually do historical research, you realise knights are nothing like that. And uh, what I've done is researched all the things that Japanese samurai believe are honourable. And instead of using just what I think is honourable from a Western concept, I've put it in a list. And I did it in a different book. And basically, um, killing the enemy, 
um, defending your own territory. Um, decapitation is fine. Infiltration under night is fine as long as you don't steal anything. Or you can fight two men on one man, and that's still honourable because it's seen okay by the rest of samurai society. <laughs> so honour changes as the ethics change. Okay, okay. The next one, righteousness, which is kind of connected to reason and truth and goodness, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, again, is that all interconnects, I suppose. It's about acting well, you know, be, be good, be reasonable, be truthful. Again, I suppose it's what you said before. You don't want people kind of hating the, the kind of samurai class. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, but what we don't know is uh, how much every single samurai adhered to these five. Now, I've read some manuals where they're horrible. They're literally, they will, you know, rob people and do that. But other manuals very much, uh, you know, you have to stay true and you have to be good. So I think we have to see the samurai as individuals so one samurai might be amazing he might follow the way he might really be into buddhism and he might strive for enlightenment another samurai might be more interested in money you know yeah. we really they are really that individual the last principle you've got is courtesy speaking observation listening it's really like they've got really good communication skills going on in their principles here oh definitely definitely without doubt great There's- and so a lot of the book is taken up with kind of like various articles and things like articles for there's articles in peace and um, articles for war really isn't it striking and can you say just something about the kind of codes that you've mentioned some of them which are kind of you know you can cut the nose off if you've got permission what are the kind of quirkier codes that they've had to follow the samurai yeah yeah well i think what most people don't realize well is that the samurai are actually based on a head hunting culture they they're more of a head cult and we always associate that with maybe africa or other places but at the the center of all samurai life is this idea that to covet the enemy's head and to capture the head and bring it back with you so for example if you've if you're on if your father has been killed it is legal it is your legal right to kill his murderer and to prove that you have to go to find him you have to sign in the local office and say, I'm here to kill such and such a body. You then have to track him into the town, kill him if you can, and then bring his head back. But of course, other people will try and capture you for doing this. His friends will try and capture you. So you have to flee. So you try and find sanctuary in people's houses and you're not allowed to take the head inside the house. And then it becomes an argument of who will vouch for the fact that you had the head in your hands and you've killed your enemy and you've fulfilled legal rights and everything. Gosh, it sounds a bit like the Wild West, but with a bit more of a stranger legal twist on it. <laughs> it totally is. It absolutely is. But I think a lot of people don't observe this part of the samurai. And I think it's a fundamental issue. Is these all revolves around the head. Because the heads mean money and land. So, I mean, if they cut the heads off of their enemy, what do they do with them? They actually, at first... So we have two situations here. You have in battle or in a personal vendetta. Yeah. In yeah. battle... They um, will go out onto the battlefield. They have a servant servant with them. They'll kill someone and they'll have to decapitate them and then they'll either put it on a hook on their horse or they'll give it to their servant or they'll tie it onto a part of their body. And when they think they've collected enough, they'll return back and they have to, to the um, command tent, and they have to then log them in the book of heads and make sure they say, okay. So you have to bring proof, for example, you bring like a neck plate from their armour or somebody witnesses that you did it because uh, there are stories of them killing monks or women and falsifying the heads to get money. 
Okay. It must have been a very gruesome thing. I mean, war is gruesome, but bringing yeah. back a load of heads must have been particularly look gruesome uh, scene, wasn't it? What is actually really weird is the fact that the the bag that you carry heads in are like grandmother's, you know, grandmother's um, shopping bags that used to be made out of nets. Yeah. 70s. It's like that. And they used to fill them with heads. So you've got to imagine these people walking off the battlefield with grandma bags full of heads. It's just like, this is just weird. So it, when it, in, in the times of peace, you know, and the samurai, you know, he's going back, I guess, going back to his family and just living. Um, were, were they like a professional army? They never, they weren't farmers, for example. Mm, this, this one, in the, it changes. In the 1500s, they are, the, the connection to the land is massive. They are not farmers per se, where they go out and literally dig the land, but they own the farms. So it's very much like the knights here. They'll own land, and that's given to them by the Lord, and they have to give that sort of tax back off that or military service. So it's very much, you know, the, uh, the similar Western society. So, yeah, you could get the idea that a samurai in the 1500s would be in his um, fortified manor house. He'd have farmlands around him, and then when the call for war went, he would have to ride and meet the rest of the army. But then, when that changed later on, they abolished that, and samurai had to move into the castle towns and live near their lords, and they never even saw their farmland after that. Now, one of my favourite films is, you know, I don't know what you think about this, but is Tom Cruise in The the Last Samurai. Is there any, is that, you know, any reality in that kind of film? The reality is is that the the struggle was a reality. Like, of course, uh, at that point, that was based just after what's called the Meiji Restoration, where the shogun, which is the military dictator family this Tokugawa he's collapsed or you know his family have collapsed and they're fighting so some samurai actually go into the new army and the other samurai stay with the old ways and there was lots of battles to who could actually gain control of Japan Uh, but of course as we know um, the samurai didn't win and it became a modern western army or western style army so there was a lot of truth that actually Westerns were bringing in, whether it was the American or whoever, but Europeans yeah. and maybe, maybe America were bringing in arms and that completely changed the whole face of warfare in Japan. Absolutely, yeah, that is totally true. They were hiring, I think, French and English and German officers and engineers. They were building warships. They were just literally sucking everything up. And the big problem at the time was Japan thought maybe we're going too fast with this. We're losing our culture. So, for example, a samurai in sixteen sorry, a samurai in eighteen sixty could be just normally going along as a samurai, and then by about uh, eighteen eighty, within twenty years, it's all gone. So, in in modern Japan now, do you find any of these samurai traditions still live on? They, it's it's really difficult that because a lot of people make the mistake of thinking Japan is a land of samurai. You have to remember that not many people were samurai, so. In truth, most people were from farmers. So do you find the samurai still there? You do, but it's distorted. For example, in World War II, they really distorted the the samurai ethos. And, you know, you must die, you must die with honour. And you get all these strange kamikaze stories and all this idea of people just die for the emperor. That wasn't quite the same in samurai times. And what about this kind of uh, harikiri where if a, a samurai was told to kill himself, they actually went out and they would just cut themselves and... Uh, you know, did that happen quite frequently? Yeah, it actually got banned because it was happening too much. There are two ways this can happen. Either you decide to do it yourself. So, for example, you're at battle and you're, you're losing and you think, I'm not being captured live, I'll kill myself. Or 
it can be um, forced execution. Uh, we have to remember that a samurai is not just an individual. He represents an entire house. So um, if he does something wrong, he can be executed, his sons can be executed, his nephews, everybody can be executed for his problems. So to get out of that, the Lord would say, commit ritual suicide and uh, your stain has been removed and the family can carry on. But sometimes they had no choice unless their entire line was to be executed. Goodness me. So the word, the word suicide sometimes is in inverted commas. Yeah. Well, I, I remember um, just from thinking about the Second World War, that the, is it true that the Japanese had a very different idea about surrendering, you know, and they couldn't understand that, say, for example, when Western soldiers surrendered, they didn't really get it, you know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's quite true that what this is where you get the distortion there's the famous books like hagakure which is the uh, you know book, the the other sort of like lists of samurai etiquette and in there there's one quote that says the way of samurai is found in death and that quote was really really over manufactured in the 1930s and the japanese were almost brainwashed into believing you have to die you have to die so yeah you got lots of suicides even females who were prisoners you know just literally um non-military people would jump into their death because they thought they had to die for the emperor and they should never be captured i mean i remember seeing quite shocking documentaries of the kamikaze pilots just slamming into american ships i mean again was that the kind of military brainwashing from the samurai time or yeah i think so but of course it does have some bit in reality that you know you get the uh, the hero charges in and he dies for you know uh, the lord and this, by the way, kamikaze means divine wind. Uh, so it means like wind from the gods. And the idea is that the, the planes are from the gods. And this was started in the 1300s or 13th century, maybe, when the Mongols invaded. And uh, there was two um, storms that ro- wrecked the Mongol ships, and it was known as the divine wind. So that's actually a replay on ancient samurai um, law. Well, Anthony, it's been like, absolutely fascinating talking with you, and it's... Uh amazing book a beautiful red and color with gold lettering the book of samurai by watkins by anthony cummins and uh, yoshi minami minami uh good luck with the book anthony and thanks for chatting with me no problem at all no problem it's been fun like what you've heard be part of our community by visiting watkinspublishing.com following us on twitter at watkins wisdom or liking us on facebook